I don't have, um, you know, fantasies of world domination and uh, riches and and uh, a new house on the hill and that kind of stuff like I used to. Um, so that's been liberating for me ultimately is to become less ambitious with career aspirations and um, and just really get into the creative process and and uh, really um, becoming more and more committed to releasing music that I can be proud of and and uh, you know, that's become more important to me than any kind of monetary success. Hello and welcome to Tomversations. That's T-H-O-M-versations, where the H makes all the difference. How the H are you? Is your summer going well? Have you like gone to the pool, been to the beach maybe, gone uh, camping, hiking, anything fun like that? Uh, did you get your vaccine yet for the old COVID-19? Oof, what a thing that is. And uh, um, I have, and it's been... Uh, Great. I've done a little bit of uh, traveling around here lately, gone to see some friends after I got the, the vaccine, and it's great to see old friends again and do a little bit of traveling. Uh, overall, here in Moscow, Idaho, in the northwest United States, really it's been hot and dry, and there are forest fires. There's a bit of smoke in the air, but otherwise, it's been a pretty good summer. Uh, but whatever's happening in your life, it is nice to have you along on this podcast ride once again. And uh, today, you will hear from Mark Pickerel. Who is Mark Pickerel, you might ask? Well, he is a musician. He's mainly known for his drumming, but he plays guitar lately, and he's pretty good at that, too. But Mark was the original drummer for the rock group The Screaming Trees. They formed about uh, mid-'80s, broke up about 2000, very popular in the early-'90s, um, right about when he quit. He kind of uh, decided to separate from the group and start his own thing. But he's also drummed for groups such as Nirvana, Truly, The Dark Fantastic. And lately, he's worked on his own music as Mark Pickerel and His Praying Hands or Mark Pickerel and the Peyote 3. But uh, it's really great. He's a great musician, good singer, too. Um, but I got to know Mark by living in the same town, Ellensburg, Washington. And I also worked for him. That is now defunct record store, the world-famous Rodeo Records. Um, but it's a great talk. He has some stories to tell, too, so we want to listen in. This uh, No Joke was recorded on April 1st of 2021. Uh, by the way, when recording this episode, there was, let's call it a technical issue, and there's a chunk of this conversation that just, it just plain didn't get recorded. And it's totally my fault. Totally on me. But uh, sometimes that's the way it goes. But uh, it's still really good chat. And uh, when that happens is when he's talking about getting his first drum set. And then he suddenly we talk about him uh, playing for Nirvana. And so I try to fill in that gap a little bit in there. And um, But it, you'll know when you hear it. It's nothing. I'll try to make it not too obtruse, but... Just because if it's put together without this little fill-in, it's kind of like, I just got my drum set, now he's playing for Nirvana. So uh, we miss a bit of his history there, but c'est la vie, as I said. But let's listen to the man. Here is Mark. Well, uh, really, uh, thanks a lot, Mark, for uh, for uh, doing this. You bet. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I You know, I, I was actually... Just thinking like, you know, I've known you for a long time and I, not until actually I started kind of doing some research for this, this uh, conversation that I, I'm like, holy cow, I know that guy, <laughs> you know, like how you've got this, you have this interesting um, music beginning in the foundations of the grunge movement. Mm -hmm. And that just like. I just knew you as Mark Pickerel. Like, I, yeah, I knew you used to drum for the Screaming Trees. Right. And that was kind of because I kind of knew about them. I grew up in Yakima, went to school in Ellensburg. And it's like they were just like the local band. Yeah, they kind of made right. it big. And like I worked in a grocery store and I'd see Van or uh, Gary Lee just kind of come yeah. through, Connor, um, kind of come through the, the shop or and then you or whoever else. And yeah. Mark Lanigan and all of a sudden like, wait, these these guys... 
you know, how did you get into that? I mean, it seems like what was like the, let's go, I've got so many questions, but let's go with like the, the one that really came into first. My first one was, what was your first instrument that you started playing? Drums. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I developed an interest in drums, um, in grade school and had a couple opportunities to play drums. Like my aunt in Spokane owned a nice Ludwig kit and, um, the drummer at our church would let me play drums sometimes after a service or after like a, you know, like a, um, some kind of event or whatever. And Mm -hmm. after everybody had kind of cleared the room and gone to like the reception hall or something like that to have coffee and donuts or something like that, I, I'd get up on the drums and, and I just had a real natural ability to, to keep a rhythm and to, um, well, more importantly, I just really enjoyed it. And, um, my mom ended up buying me a kit around sixth grade, just some really cheap kit at a, um, at a yard sale. And I joined the school band uh, in sixth grade, the, you know, the marching band, or it wasn't a marching band yet, just the, the school orchestral band or whatever it was called. It's just playing snare drum and bells and things like that. And so anyway, just um, my talent developed, my, my parents um, recognized some potential and, and uh, agreed to pay for drum lessons. Okay, so this is where that technical issue happened that I talked about in the beginning of the podcast where things just didn't get recorded. So this is that section. Welcome to it. And now uh, here's more with Mark Pickrell. We were also talking about the Nirvana a little bit there. And you you did some work for them or you you did a drumming on a couple songs for them or yeah, something like that? Yeah, actually, it, it's funny. I was kind of working with um, and around them um, in two different capacities. I worked at Sub Pop Records right after Bleach came out, Nirvana's Bleach, and I did um, I I did everything from um, retail sales and promotion to um, some just some general promotion, um, even um, going so far as to having sent uh, MTV Nirvana's uh, first recordings or. I should say that I was the first person to send MTV Nirvana recordings. And um, one of the gals on the um, music video um, new artists uh, round table or whatever was so excited about the CDs that I sent her that she asked me if I could send her six more for the other people on the, on the music committee there. And uh, so I ended up sending like six copies of the first Nirvana record to to MTV like maybe two years before Nevermind came out. So I always like to pat myself on the back every chance I get <laughs> for having been the first person to introduce Nirvana to MTV. That's That um, was huge. MTV was yeah. music oh, yeah. for it, a long time there, for a decade I mean, maybe. Yeah, they, it, was, it was kind of everything. Um, if, you, if, you wanted, if you wanted to end up on the map, you, you had to, to, you know, to get some airtime on MTV. Uh, anyway, so I was al- also in a band, a little side project that Lanigan from the Trees and myself started with Kurt and Chris from Nirvana called The Jury. Um, and we were a band that was going to be s- devoted specifically to um, re-recording and, and reinterpreting Lead Belly's songs. Whoa. Um, and for and Lead Belly's a, boy, he's a, foot stomper like three strings on his guitar blues guy yeah yeah um and we were all fascinated with him as well as many other blues icons and um in fact i think we we would have branched out into playing um uh several uh, songs by several other blues artists but we decided to start by focusing on just the lead belly catalog because we knew that there'd be enough songs there to make a you know a full length and you can anyway, really so interpret those two or three times. And, and um, Lanigan and Cobain, Cobain traded um, lead vocals on, on different songs. And, um, but we just, we didn't have time to develop it um, as much as I would have liked. And after just doing one initial session that included Where Did You Sleep Last Night? And They Hung Him on a Cross, Ain't It a Shame, Grey Goose, and I think one other um, that we all recorded with Jack and Dino, who'd been producing Nirvana records and Screaming Trees and Soundgarden, Tad, Mudhoney. 
after one initial session with him, the project kind of ended up on the back burner while both of our bands pursued, you know, um, touring and, you know, Nirvana got signed to Geffen and a few months later we were signed to Epic or it might've been the other way around, but anyway, both bands careers just didn't allow for enough time for us to develop this, this side project. Unfortunately, you had to keep your day job. Yeah. Yeah. Which I actually literally had, I had the day job at sub pop and then um, playing in the screaming trees and yeah, it was, it was a lot. Wow. And then, um, so you do this little side project and you're, you, um, but, uh, you, you really that the career of the screaming trees was like, how long was that? Like maybe five years. Was it that long? The band lasted, uh, longer. And I just want to say, I just had, I was just telling my daughter the other day that, um, one of the nights that Nirvana, um, came up to Seattle to rehearse with us to work on this, on that, uh, lead belly project. Um, Kurt and Chris stayed the night at my house and we stopped at Dick's Burgers after our session to get something to eat. And I had to buy Cobain French fries cause he, he, just, he had absolutely no money, uh, on his person. So, um, I was telling my daughter about that the other day. She got a real kick out of that. Anyway, the screaming trees were around from like, um, we formed approximately in like 83, 84 and then I left around 91 and then the band continued to um, record and perform together until 2000, I think, because I think oh, that their last okay. show was at Ex- the Experience Music Project uh, opening. So I think that was their last show. Wow. Okay. Sadly. All right. So the band was around for more than a decade. Yeah. Okay. I think I played on six, six or seven releases. Huh? Okay, that's great. Um, and then my uh, favorite Beatle, by the way, George. Yeah. Well, you know they're all pretty good, but they're great. But George, you know, he had something yeah. going on. Yeah. He was he was otherwise connected. Yeah. Just people just couldn't understand. He and Ringo, I think, are different. Yeah. Um, but uh, so uh, so what was that? What was going on there that you decided that you had to uh, separate from the screaming trees? It was complicated. Um, it was a, it was a few things. Um, it was a difficult band to be in, in terms of um, relationships. I uh, heard there, that. there was a lot of fighting between Mark and. I would say that Lee was the target of a lot of Mark's insults and mm. complaints and accusations and um and and he continues to voice those um opinions about lee to this day unfortunately like um uh most specifically in in the book that he just wrote um a few months ago anyway uh, i am kind of a natural born peacekeeper and um sort of place it's 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 my nature to want to um to uh oversee um, diplomacy and harmony and it was just a really stressful job trying to um, be the peacekeeper in that band and uh, between that and being really excited about my my job at Sub Pop at the time and then I I, I started dating someone who um, really had a hard time with my with my touring or with the the band's constant touring. So between pressure from her to, um, to stay home from the the traveling circus and a a new job at a record label that I was really excited and proud to work for. And then, and then just some personal issues um, within the band, within the screaming trees. um, I just decided I, I need to, I need to shift focus and pivot into some different areas of interest, including retail. Um, as you know, I owned and operated my own record store from like 91 until 2005 and you, you worked there. So yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So I'd grown up working in, uh, in record stores and frequenting them and had had always had fantasies of opening up my own record store. So, when my girlfriend in Seattle um, 
around 91, expressed interest in, in attending Central Washington University, I thought that might be a good opportunity to explore my retail fantasies and open up a record store. So that's what that's what I did. And uh, we moved back and I, I started selling records out uh, inside the, um, the video store that that the Connor family of the Screaming Trees owned and that I used to work at. Um, well, that Connor family is really influential in your life, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. They are my family. They are um, as much of a family to me as the Pickrolls. Uh, no, no doubt about it. Yeah, because uh, I remember they had to, uh, it was they and they had some really far out uh, videos in there too. Some very yeah uh, stuff you wouldn't Huge normally classics yeah. section and yeah sci sci fi and foreign yeah. films um, yeah. yeah yeah blew a lot of minds. <laughs> from the from the uh the uh principal of the elementary school yeah yeah but uh yeah and their their kids were also uh family did a lot of uh experimenting with video and yeah all kinds of things right. and um yeah so that that's great so yeah you started there mm -hmm. and uh eventually you, you made it you you came into the uh world famous Rodeo Records shop there right on Main Street. How did you ever score that building? Well, I'd been at New World Video right across the street from there for a couple of years. And it was the Honda shop. And then Honda shop decided to move out onto University Way or whatever that um, road is called between University Way and the, the West Interchange. Yeah. Um, or the, yeah, anyway, um, I just saw a for rent sign go up one day, I think, and ran across the street and um, looked both ways before crossing. And then um, <laughs> you made it too. Went over and, 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 and inquired, you know, and uh, the price was right. And I think, it, you know, I think that I think it was 600 bucks a month. And uh, I felt like we could have, we were finally in a position to, to afford, uh, afford that. And we just, yeah, we just, we went for it and it, it turned out really well wouldn't you say it was great we had a good run and uh, you know we our our sales increased by like 20 or 30 percent annually sometimes even more but then by the time the late 90s came along and people started discovering um napster different ways yeah napster and um other ways to uh, obtain music without uh compensation uh it just became way too difficult now had i had a had i pivoted to becoming more of a boutique um curated store at that time we 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 could have we could have continued doing business but by then everyone's expectation of us was that we um operate the same way tower records did and have everything for everybody all the time and it was it was just too big of a, it, it just was an impossible task to have that deep of an inventory and still um, pay your bills. Um, because you know, you, you have to pay for all those titles that are sitting there. Um, as, as you, you, you remember what, you know, the, the challenges that, that we went through and that we faced. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, like I said, we, we had, had we defined ourselves had we defined ourselves as a specialty store earlier on um, carrying music that we were interested in and that we stood by and that we could recommend, we might've been able to, um, to uh, uh, improvise a little more smoothly throughout that period. But because there was already this pressure on us to be everything to everybody all the time, it, it was too difficult to, reinvent ourselves or, or at, least, at least i didn't want to try yeah and that's a difficult transition to to realize too at the time you know yeah because it was all about the music i mean the, i i remember just going in there and talking to you or one of the other employees there and like just just sitting there and talking about like what's new what's you know point me to something interesting and cool and then you go to a listening station you pop in a disc or you know and um and and listen to the new music and that's how you discovered music was that way mm -hmm. and um, i missed that i missed that a lot yeah. 
And, and I, I think that, that is coming around, but it's, you know, but it's with albums, which I think mm -hmm. is interesting. That That's yeah. really, that is really bizarre. But uh, so, but you, you did have some boutique things there at the show. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, no, we, we, we certainly did. Um, but, you know, the slowing in sales coincided with me um, becoming more ambitious again about writing and performing music. And I, I had joined the Dusty 45s around that time who, who were doing a lot of touring and performing. And, and the Dusty and, 45s, they're like, basically, it's like, uh, um, like how, how would you describe the music they... Well, it's like roots rock, Americana, rockabilly, um, jump blues. You know, you, you go watch that band, and it was sort of like watching um, a um, what's the the word for it? Basically, a presentation of like the um, highlights of the you know of of the last fifty years of recorded um, you know rockabilly roots, and you know it was it. So it was a and it was a real spectacle. Um, Billy, Billy Joe, the front man, you know, lights his trumpet on fire at the end of the show. And, you know, there's, you know, the, the, there's a lot of, there's all these classic songs that a lot of bands won't touch because they're too difficult to, to perform. Um, you know, we'd play Miserloo by Dick Dale and we'd play, um, it was just like, it, it was a, it was a carnival, you know, it was just, it was a, <laughs> Um, it was anyway. It was a blast, but it became really difficult for me to to um, perform with them as often as we did, and still manage a record store back in Ellensburg. Yeah. And since since I could see the writing on the wall anyway, um, and so, sold my building, and that coincided with um, the Nirvana box set coming out that featured a couple of songs I I performed on, and so the royal be, between the um the profit from selling my my building and and then royalties from nirvana I, I was in a position to just focus on music for the next three to six years and then is that when you started creating your own music and putting your own band together yeah that was kind of just a coincidence too that i had um started um placing more emphasis on my songwriting and and uh in fact, yeah, when, when I moved to, to Seattle in 2005, that was um, right around the time I started performing as a solo artist under my own name. And so, yeah, for, you know, so for like the last uh, 15 years, I guess, I've been performing under my own name and putting out records, which I have another one on the way. Got to take this opportunity to plug my, my sure. new records. Yeah. Rebel in the Rearview just came out a few weeks ago, and then there's one coming out um all originals coming out in uh in july called i have visions whoa cool yeah thanks yeah i i gave a listen to your album and um um rebel in the rear view and mm -hmm. you it's I, I i don't know if all of the songs were covers but most of them are covers right all but two and um there's one um by I wrote down who it was here. So the one by um, the the uh, Secret Sisters. Yeah. Tennessee River Runs Low. Yeah. That song, you you did a great a rendition of that song, and it really shows off your voice. I think. Thank you. That particular song has been getting some airplay around the country, and then and I saw that it's getting played in Russia. I don't know if it was a radio station in Russia oh. or a podcast in russia i'm not sure but that came across my radar just this morning um but so you know that i played drums on the secret sisters version of that song mm -hmm. um that brandy carlisle produced several years ago and that song specifically really resonated with me and my daughters loved it and so i asked um Laura of the Secret Sisters, if she would teach it to me on guitar so that I could sing it with my daughters. So she taught it to me when they played at the Tractor Tavern in Seattle a few years ago backstage. And I asked her if I could just film her wow. playing playing the guitar part so that I'd remember when I got home. And then I started um, singing that song when I was busking at SeaTac Airport every week. So it was only natural that, that I eventually record my own version of it. 
Um, but yeah, I'm really happy that it's uh, getting some attention around the globe. That's really, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Thanks. That, uh, that, um, yeah, interesting in a good way that, uh, yeah. you know, um, you take this song and you interpret it in your own style, but uh, the song itself by the secret sisters is actually good. Really. They've got some very interesting harmonies Incredible. and, Incredible. um, um, yeah. That's yeah. And you know, the idea. funny thing is, is that I didn't even think of it as me interpreting the song. It's just the way it, it's just the way when I went to sing it, that's just the way it sounded. And certainly I probably heard, I probably heard something in the song that isn't, that didn't exist there before that my voice wanted to do hmm. or, um, or the way I wanted to, to strum the, the part on the guitar or whatever, but it wasn't, I don't usually set out to reinvent a song or, or to, even really to reinterpret it as much as I just do what comes natural as I learn the song. And maybe I um, instinctively just hear something different in the tune that isn't in the original. Mm -hmm. um, so it, you know, and there's other, I have a lot of favorite songs that I would never even care to try to, to, um, to perform or record because I, I don't hear that opportunity for me to do anything unique with it, but there's other songs that I immediately hear that opportunity. Hmm. And that, that was certainly one of them, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great. I, I really like the album. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I, I hope it does well for you and you can, uh, uh, buy, uh, you can get it at uh, Bandcamp. Yeah. And it's a Mark Prickroll and his praying hands. Yeah. You can actually listen to it and download it just about anywhere, but I prefer that you go to down to Bandcamp because they they offer a bigger share of the revenue to their artists, and and us artists get paid in real time, like or within like twenty four hours of a purchase. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, but well, all the more reason to go to use Bandcamp. Yeah, support artists definitely. Uh, yeah. When you're like so, so you go with the Dusty Forty Fives, and then you also start playing with other. Uh, musicians at that time. I mean, because the Dusty 45s, the, to me, uh, um, th they played a lot. I mean, they play Ellensburg frequently. Um, yeah. They're, it seems like they're just very popular. Uh, is a bar band? Is that, I don't mean in a bad way, but I mean, it seems like that's where you play a lot is in bars because it's fun to listen to. Good, yeah. good crowd-pleasing yeah, music. Played, we played every, you know, we, we played roadhouses, we played weddings, we played bar mitzvahs. We played, <laughs> We played county fairs. We played street fairs. We played little dive bars. We played the show box. Um, we, you know, so there was no stage too small or too big for us. We, you know, and we, and we knew how to, to work a room. Nobody works a room better than Billy Joe. Um, you know, uh, you know, they, they went on to back up Wanda Jackson um, all over Europe. They became what? Wanda Jackson's backing band. Really? Opening up shows, even opening up shows for Adele. Amazing. Yeah, pretty cool. Wow. And so um, then what happened? At, then what's the next step after the Dusty 45s? You, that's when you started to really explore your own thing. Yeah. So I I got signed to um, to Bloodshot Records. They, they put out my first couple of solo records, and that was the same label that was putting out like... Um, Nico Case and um, Ryan Adams and um, Wayne Hancock, the Sadies, a bunch of my favorite bands were were on on Bloodshot. Anyway, so um, I signed with Bloodshot and started, you know, touring ar around the country uh, as a solo artist, opening up for guys like um, uh, Robin Hitchcock and and uh, the Waco Brothers and um, Sally Timms, Nico. Um, yeah, so I, I, I got pretty busy as a solo artist and, and got married and had kids and, and, uh, you know, so I've just been kind of, I've been busy. <laughs> and you also, um, your, your musical choices seems to as transition there too, in there, because you start off in kind of a, a grungy, you know, if you th I don't think I, I, I have a hard time hearing the screaming trees and the kind of, uh, uh was, would you call it rockish rockabilly country? I'm not sure how you define the music you play now, but there is kind of a country-ish tune. Or yeah. Feel I mean, to it. I think, I think I like you know, the term Americana. Okay 
feels right because um, it's you know it, it's it's influenced by a lot of um, iconic American fixtures, um, but but from all genres, you know, Jim Morrison, um, Johnny Cash, um, Jimi Hendrix, you know, um, Neil Young. Well, he's Canadian, obviously, but I mean, just a lot of um, classic singer-songwriters, Towns Van Zant, for instance, Lucinda Williams. Um, and then I also grew up listening and still listen to a lot of like just classic vocalists, like, you know, Les Paul and Mary Ford, mm. um, Julie London, uh, Billie Holiday. I listened to a lot of jazz soloists. I listened to um, a lot of early um, uh, country and folk Americana. I listened to a ton of uh, psychedelia, the 13th floor elevators, love Hendrix. Um, but I'm a huge, I'm also a huge British invasion fan. I love the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and um, the Beatles and, and then all the eighties groups that were emulating those sounds from, you know, Echo and the Bunnymen to psychedelic furs and the specials. And, um, you know, it, the, you know, there, um, there isn't a genre that I don't enjoy on a certain level. And I think, and at different times, I, I, I might, um, I might make a conscious decision to make a specific record that celebrates um, a certain uh, aspect of, of, of my interests, and then shift away from that back towards more, more like a, like a roots rock you know, just it might depend on what I'm already, what kinds of music I'm writing. I might write some music and and immediately hear synthesizers in my head, uh, at which point, you know, I'll go down, we'll go that direction. And then I might write some stuff that, that feels um, like it has more in common with, you know, 60s and 70s Americana. And I might decide to, you know, kind of keep, keep it simple with, acoustic guitars and, and an occasional electric and, you know, maybe an organ and bass and drums, you know, just it. So um, I like to honor my first instincts, but I also like to experiment along the way. Yeah. So, and, and even though drumming was your first uh, instrument, um, you, you've posted some songs on, on Facebook and you, you're a really good guitar player, Mark. I mean, I, I, I don't that I, I can't really say that I know guitar players, but man, mm. your strumming is excellent, and how you you also use the the, the, the your guitar is also a uh, you kind of uh, strum or beat on it. I don't know what that that is yeah, called. it's like a little flamenco thing I do. Yeah, and I think thank you. Um, I don't really consider myself um, a gifted or advanced guitar player uh, in the least. But if I do have any natural talent on the guitar, it's probably all from my rhythmic background. So you, you mentioned the strumming and, and so the, the things that I'm known for on the guitar are things that I, that, that I developed um, out of my rhythmic sensibilities and my, rhythm, my, my talent as a drummer. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm glad I, I've been able to, to use that to help shape my, my style as a guitarist, but man for as many hours as i've spent playing guitar i should be a lot better <laughs> i mean i've already spent 10 times as much time on the guitar as i did on drums and i'm a much more accomplished drummer than i am a guitar player there's like no question about it people have let me put it this way no one has ever once asked me to play guitar on anything and i still get calls all the time to play drums on records so <laughs> okay yeah. <laughs> well, to my ear, you sound good, and it looks good too. I appreciate uh, <laughs> it. I love to play guitar; it feels good. So that's what you know. That's the most important thing. Yeah, you know, I've uh, I tried to play guitar, but it just never, this never stuck with me. Uh, I've always been a vocalist. That's my thing is uh, my voice. But you got a great speaking voice. I mean, you're you're. I mean, here you on NPR. You're you're real natural. You fit right in. Well, thanks. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, what I love about the guitar, just in general, is its portability. Um, suddenly, yeah. you you take it out, and suddenly you've you can you've got a concert. You know, yeah. just you and a guitar, easy to travel with. At least it's not like you know uh, an upright bass where you know. 
<laughs> you have to have a van in order to mm -hmm. take that anywhere, or even a drum set for that matter. That's yeah. not easy at all around. Yeah. Um, and so when you're thinking of these, like, uh, you're like interpreting songs or maybe you're coming up with something new. What the, is there something that inspires you? Like you, you looked for something for inspiration or is there a muse that you have or. Well, you know, um, so here's my process. I get up pretty early in the morning, put on some, you know, uh, make some coffee and then uh, I just start strumming. And oftentimes I'm like, I usually have about like between like six and 12 songs in the works, like chord progressions that I'm working on and that I'm trying to perfect and make a little more interesting or whatever. And as, I've, as I'm developing chord progressions, which usually come pretty natural, but, on, but only a few of them are, in, are really interesting enough to bring me back to that same melody day after day after day. Um, and and if, if a chord progression possesses that ability to um, uh, to to keep uh, to keep me interested, then then I feel like okay, I, I, it's time for me to to develop um, some lyrics to this thing. Like I, I already hear the melody, I'm already kind of like mumbling some lyrics that just sort of you know um, appear out of nowhere, and then comes the hard work of deciding you know what's this song about mm. and. Um, and, and what what topic have I have have I either not covered before, or how can I how can I make the same topic interesting again to myself and to uh, a prospective listener? So that's really where the challenge is: is it's um, trying to figure out how to take a chord progression and turn it into some you know uh, a three and a half minute story and work of art and um, um, I have a real commitment to making the music convey some kind of emotion. And I've, I've become more and more interested in, in what the overall sound and the music conveys as opposed to whether or not I tell um, a story in its entirety, for instance. And, um, but all, but all these things are challenging. Um, it's, it's especially the more music you recorded um, the more challenging it is to do something that that um, that you feel is is worthy of of release, and that you that you feel is worthy of sharing. If it's too reminiscent of of topics that you've already covered, or of, or if it sounds too much like songs you've already performed, well, then you start to to feel like is there is there any is there any reason to continue developing this this particular song or is it time to scrap it for something else and so that you know that that's that's what i face day in day out it's it's uh it's just a constant you know negotiation with myself wow that's interesting constant negotiation with yourself mhm mm huh yeah, so you know, and I, I, because I, I collect records and I buy and sell them, I'm constantly asking myself things like, is would this particular song be worthy of its own, of occupying its own space on a seven-inch single? Like, hmm. like, does this song hold its own in in that kind of format? Like, if I bought a seven-inch single tomorrow and put it on regardless of what era it was from, whether it was recorded yesterday or 40 years ago, would this, would this song please me? Would I, would I be excited to hear this song for the first time? Um, and that's a, that, that, it, it's hard to accomplish that. Yeah. That's it's a high really bar. That's that. a high bar. I, I think I've only accomplished it for myself. Like be, maybe like, I don't know, three to four, three or four times, maybe four to six times out of, you know, 50 songs I've released it or released or something like that. Now, that doesn't mean that the other songs don't have value. It just means that that they aren't worthy of existing in a format like a seven inch single. I, I wouldn't promote them the way I would promote a seven inch single mm -hmm. or expect them to have the success that you would hope a, a seven inch single would would have. 
um, uh, quality that even that even though you can't hear some other quality, I, either a story that you really want to tell or a mood that you really want to convey. Um, but to um, to release something that is, is worthy of of uh, being promoted as a single. Yeah, you know, when you're, you, uh, I'm still rattling in my head this uh, negotiation that you have with yourself. Um, I'm reminded of something. I had the pleasure of speaking to with uh, Eric Idle, one of the uh, Monty Python crew. And oh, neat. Because he, um, he writes most of the songs that, uh, yeah, that you hear. Yeah, I've, I've heard his interviews too. And he said something that um, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly. It was a long time ago, but he basically just keeps at it. Like he gets up, yeah. he's like you, he gets up in the morning and he just starts going through it and just starts keeping at it. He was saying that uh, he and, um, oh, who else he used to write with uh, on Monty Python, they would basically come up with something and then they would not stop until they had it right. Where others, yeah. other writers take it, put it aside and then come back to it, try something else oh. and then come back to it. And yeah. then try to make something again out of it. And he says, we didn't. We just kept at it, kept hammering at it, hammering at yeah. it, hammering at it, hammering yeah. at it. And then sometimes you have to put it away. You go, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll put that away for a while and then come back to it. But um, it's interesting how you, because I'm thinking that he probably has that same kind of negotiation. It's like, okay, what am I going to do with this? So I'm just going to keep, mm -hmm. keep, keep at it, 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 or put it aside for now because my, my I'm just wasting my energy on it. Yeah. I'm not disciplined enough to, um, to take the stay at it approach. And I, and I don't always know that it produces the, the best results because sometimes, you know, um, like I wrote a song called burn the shrine, for instance, that I started writing around 2003 or something like that. And I don't think it came out until, um, I don't think I finished the last verse of it until like, uh, 2016 or 2012 wow. or something like that. Yeah. And, um, and you know, I, the best lyrics are the ones I wrote, you know, six or eight years into it. And, mm -hmm. um, but other times it's true. Like my favorite, the, my favorite song lyrically that I ever wrote was called I study horses. And, and I wrote that like in less than two days. Um, but um like this this coming week i decided i'm gonna spend all, all those hours that i normally spend in the morning on the guitar developing melodies and harmonies and things like that i decided i'm going to do a whole week of just lyrics with no i'm not i'm not going to pick up my guitar i'm going to work on lyrics to like these 10 or 15 songs that i haven't uh, in in various stages of development and I'm just gonna sit with a notebook or my computer and just work on the lyrics for a whole week because when the guitar is in my hand, um, I just can't finish lyrics because I want to start noodling and I want to mm -hmm. start, you know, I want to I want to search for a different chord progression or discover a different riff or whatever because there's a real thrill in that. Um, but it's also just part of escapism. And ultimately, if if I if I don't put the guitar down and, and pick up a pen, I'm really just farting around. You know? <laughs> and and eventually I'll lose yeah. interest in those chord progressions and I'll abandon them. And so sometimes I have to really decide, okay, if, if you're going to take the song to the next level, you actually need to put the, the guitar down so that you can really get some work done on the lyrics. And, and maybe I'll only finish three songs. Um, maybe I'll only finish a couple, but that's a lot more than I'd finish if I didn't take that approach. Time to knuckle so, down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> there's a an, another guy that another saying that i like um he is a uh i can't remember his name but he's an accomplished um um t oh come on not not mandolin uh, the the tiny guitar from hawaii that uh what is it ukulele ukulele he's an accomplished ukuleleist and uh, uh he was saying what he does is he he just kind of noodles around with it and he said what comes out of it is fruit of the noodle <laughs> I like it. I always like that too. Yeah, noodle around, and you just said, yeah, "I can noodle around like food of the noodle." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we just, you know, I mean, that's the way. That's the way you discover new um, chord progressions and uh, things. But, but at some point, if you don't cultivate 
some of those discoveries and, and then eventually you'll you'll forget about them and they'll you know um they'll just they'll go to waste so you just have a bunch of noodles yeah you know you and need I, some sauce i love noodles but <laughs> um, but yeah i feel yeah. like I, I feel like i'm on a creative role and i also feel like i'm cool i'm i'm, I'm, I'm in a position the first time in many years that I feel like I can, I can afford to uh, pursue um, releasing records and promoting records. And uh, I want to seize the moment and, um, and release as much music as I can in the next few years. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Good on you, man. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, are you going to be uh, with the, you're going to do it with the, the praying hands, which uh, kind of is a. Actually, I started performing with some guys under the, we, we started performing under the name Pickerel and the pit and the peyote three. And, um, and those guys performed on some of the songs that came out on the last record under the moniker praying hands. Um, Cause that's not so, all the same guys, the praying hands. Right, yes, always... I, ha I have, there's about eight or 10, different musicians that that make up the praying hands or the peyote three um i want to shift the um the direction a little bit and change the name to the peyote three um partly just so that i'll have some new imagery to work with and and i kind of want to i i feel like there's been enough of a shift musically um in the, in the last few years and enough member changes over the last few years that I feel like I want to do something to, to kind of um, celebrate that and to promote that. And I also just want a, some different words um, to work with, you know, when, when designing uh, album covers and concert posters and um, it's just, it's time for a change. And when you have peyote in it, you can get pretty psychedelic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And will you, so you, again, it's just going to be your own music with the, these band members. Yeah. And if, but I mean, those guys are my band. I mean, if, if, you know, if you listen to, you know, you even, when you talk about that song, um, Tennessee river runs low, like the contributions that, that those guys made to, to that performance of that song were really important and really important in, in the way that song was shaped and the way, it, you know, the way it was developed. And so, um, when I when I credit a band with um, as you know when 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 I say Mark Pickerel and his praying hands or Pickerel and the Peyote Three, it's not just some fictitious imaginary band. These people are um, great contributors to what I do and really do shape the help shape the outcome of of what I'm releasing. So I think it it. I think it would be doing a disservice to myself and to them to just release records under my own name and then just credit them individually. I, I think that, I think, um, I think giving credit to a band, wh whether the, the band's name represents a specific lineup or not is kind of irrelevant or I'm, I'm, I'm deciding that it's not important anyway. Yeah, they're not Because yet. I can't keep a band together consistently. And I hope it's not my personality. I'm pretty sure it's circumstances. You know, like everybody's in two or three different bands. Um, so sometimes when I go to call Jeff Fielder to see if, if he can do some show that I got offered, well, it turns out he's going to be out touring with the Indigo Girls or with Mark Lanigan. Um, when I call Mike Musburger to play drums, he might be out touring with Ringo Starr as Ringo Starr's stage uh, manager. Um, or playing drums with the posies or playing drums with the fastbacks. Um, my bass, one of my bass players plays in a group called the intelligence and they tour two or three months out of the year. Um, working musicians. So, yeah. So, um, and it used to be really frustrating to me that I couldn't depend on the same two or three people over and over again, but now I've really come to enjoy and appreciate, um, the different, influences and interpretations I hear from from these guys and, and girls. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it sometimes leads to, to um, like, some awkward moments as I transition from one group to another and 
and hear her certain songs reinterpreted in a way that may, maybe doesn't work for me. And I have to, you know, um, assert my original vision or try to explain to one guitar player that I'd really like him to play it the way the other guitar player did. And other times the new guitar player might do something with the part that I enjoy even more than I did the original. So I just have to improvise and adapt and adjust and, and, but ultimately I love being around all these people and they all have um, great respect for my music. Um, and so, and I have great respect for, for their talents. And so we just, we just figure out ways to make these things work. Um, so at the end of the day, I feel really fortunate that I, that I have like this, you know, uh, Rolodex full of incredible people and, and musicians and access to them. Yeah, that's uh, good on you, man, because um, there are many people that are that uh, want control. You know, my band, you're in my band. Yeah. yeah. You, you can't leave. You know, how the hell did the Rolling Stones stay around for so long? Holy cow. Oh, it's, it's astonishing. And like I said, I, I, I used to really want that for myself. I wanted to I wanted to I wanted to be the front man of a really great rock band. And um I wanted to rehearse twice a week with the same people and go out for beers afterwards and then play the show and go on tour and, you know, um, spend a week in a recording studio together. And, but, um, by the time I was fronting my own band, you know, I, I was, um, employing people who were, you know, of, of the same generation as me. And therefore, um, they were, you know, dealing with um, they got lives, jobs, and families, and yeah. had all kinds of, and then also a, a changing of priorities and reprioritizing um, uh, what their um, you know goals were and and priorities and everything. So it was, it it just it wasn't possible. It wasn't possible to to maintain a consistent lineup. But it seems like this is actually a better way to go. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. that's 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 really great. No, I mean to get to have more connections, see more people, make yeah. more friends, yeah. new friends. Yeah. Be like water, not like rock. That's right. That's right. <laughs> seems to have worked for you, man. Yeah, for some sometimes, sometimes. Yeah, right now, I like I said, I, I'm feeling like I'm I've kind of enjoying some flow or my stride or, um, and, and, and also I've, I've lowered my expectations. Um, you know, my hopes for, you know, if, if I re release a record tomorrow, my hope is that enough people will pay, you know, uh, download it or, or purchase it. Um, you know, that I, I might make half my money back on the, you know, on the whole endeavor and that, and that the songs might get played on radio stations, on podcasts throughout the globe. And, and that, uh, some of the success might lead to performing, uh, on, on a few stages that I've never performed on before and performing with some, some artists that I've never played with before. So I don't, I don't have, um, you know, fantasies of world domination and uh, riches and and uh, a new house on the hill and that kind of stuff, like I used to. Um, so, you know that that's been that's been liberating for me. Ultimately, is to is to uh, become less ambitious with career aspirations and. Um, and just really get into the creative process and and um, and uh, really um, becoming more and more committed to releasing music that I can be proud of and and uh, you know that's become more important to me than any kind of monetary success. Look how wise you've gotten, Mark. <laughs> that's wisdom, man. That is wisdom. Because I mean, you you could still maintain a, a mass ego and 
you know, I used to be in this band and we did this, you know, because, uh, you know, you still, you, it's tough to get out of that, you know, uh, I think, I don't know. I, I'm not trying to interpret your thoughts. I'm just saying as, um, you know, it's when, also, when you have early it success also comes from, it, it's also based on my circumstances. You know, I, I finally learned how to make a living just by junking and flipping stuff, you know, like secondhand, um, you know, I, I, I sell antiques and vintage vinyl and vintage clothes and stuff like that. And, and, um, that's at the Thorpe antique. Yeah. Mall, I right? sell out of the Thorpe antique mall. I sell out of Gerald's bookstore. I sell online. I sell direct to other, other antique and other, uh, vintage, uh, retailers. And, um, so I do some wholesaling as well. Anyway, I'm finally, um, you know, enjoying some financial stability in my life. And so that takes the pressure off me as a, as a, as an entertainer and a songwriter to, to, to um, achieve success in that area of my life. And so that's been really healthy for me because um, whereas, you know, 10 years ago when I had really made a decision that, that music was going to be my full-time occupation, well, then it was much more important to me that, that a record be successful because if it wasn't, then it was, you know, um, back to the you know, bread line and, and uh, food bank and, you know, um, and I'm not, I, I, and, and, and I'm being literal. I mean, that was really the, the, the reality. Um, so, uh, you know, now, now I have a little bit more flexibility and, and, uh, freedom to experiment without the worry of, of, uh, of failure in that area. Hmm. So you basically change your focus from, uh, your life being the music to music being a part of your life. Yeah. Right. Although it's a major um, part. I mean, it's, it doesn't mean I'm any less, um, prolific or ambitious. It's just that I don't, I don't, uh, um, I don't entertain, uh, the kind of fantasies I used to. It's so difficult to know what people will buy you know amen to that brother it's so difficult and 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 not only that but uh you know my the way that i interpret it what i produce is i i i, I make a lot of things i mean i i think i i uh, you know i do a podcast i'm on the radio a lot uh, i do a jazz show um i i do many things mm -hmm. and um so my thought has always been i'll do what i want to do and hopefully other people will join the the fun or, you know, come along mm -hmm. with me. Right. And it seems like you've kind of come along to that. Yeah, to a certain degree, I, I have. Now, I still have to do a lot of self-promotion. Otherwise, oh, people yeah. wouldn't, you know, wouldn't come along. Um, <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and I don't. <laughs> yeah, hardly anybody does, even with all the self-promotion I do. Uh, um, and that's easily my least, uh, you know, that that's, that's one aspect of what I do that I, I wish I could avoid is, is all the self-promotion, but mm -hmm. I, I just don't have the choice. And it's just far too expensive to, to hire, you know, to outsource for, uh, for that stuff. So, um, but yeah, I, I kind of forget where I was going with this, but, oh, in other words, um, you know, I'd be lying if I said I, I didn't hope for success and that I didn't strive for it. But just that I have, you know, um, much more real, more, much more realistic expectations of of what um, what kind of success uh, one of my releases might enjoy. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. I'll and like I'll tell you this, Tom. Yeah, I still like you know, like just this last week, I was I sent files of my new recordings to several different people in the film world. Um, people who do music placement for TV shows and, and movies and things like that. Um, you know, pitching my songs for television shows and movies and things like that. So I'm constantly looking for new ways to market my music. So, um, you know, wh while I'm, while I'm uh, telling you that I've lowered my expectations on the same, the same time, I'm still, you know, I'm, uh, I'm still shooting for the stars, you know, I'm still, I'm still, putting my best foot forward every day and trying to do everything I can to, to, to experience a, at least a certain level of success. 
just so that I can afford to keep doing it. And hopefully so I can leave my, my daughters a small fortune and, and royalties uh, as they get older. That would be great. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You, you have to strive, keep striving. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, and then you got to find- I haven't stopped people. caring by any means. Oh yeah, and if hopefully I that wasn't what I was interpreting. I wasn't trying to no, say that. No, yeah, I didn't think so, but I just thought I'd clarify that. Yeah, yeah, definitely no, because uh, I mean, uh, you, I watched your little video they had on KEXP. That that'd be a hoot, and um, um, yeah. Do you okay? Uh, you can answer this question or not, but do you get much money from royalties? Um, you know, I'm curious. I, I'm always curious about that. I, let's just it's somewhere in the few thousand dollars a year. And um, occasionally there's a bigger payoff, like occasionally a record label will, will pay the screaming trees for like six years of back royalties that they fail to pay or oh, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then it'll be like a pretty um, sizable payday. But um, I, I can't live off royalties anymore, but, but I get royalties often enough that it still excites me and you know, you know, a check will come from Nirvana or the Screaming Trees, or even from publishing from my own song, something like that. And um, you know, I'll decide, okay, we're all gonna we're, we're gonna we're gonna go out for dinner, and I want everybody, you know, order whatever you want. You know, this one's yeah. on me, and you know, we'll um, I'll treat I'll treat the family to like our favorite restaurant, and you know, and. Yeah, Nirvana is taking care of dinner tonight, you guys. That <laughs> you know, feels pretty good. Um, huh. Or just just seeing a check come in the mail from Nirvana um, is kind of a thrill. Um, but yeah, so I I make enough money annually from royalties to to do to do some things with that money that are part. It's 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 a way of it's a way of feeling some, you know, validation and, um, and I, I like to do something fun with at least a certain portion of that money every year, whether it's something, um, like I just described, or it might be buying, you know, a new guitar or, um, or, or investing in recording sessions for new songs, things like that. So I, I like, I like for at least a portion of that money to go back into, um, process that's smart i think yeah reinvest yeah. in yourself yeah awesome what's um what's the future of mark um Pickroll? okay so i'm waiting for mixes to come the last two mixes to come back from uh martin who i've been working with um uh on on i've been working on records with since the early 90s or mid 90s um Martin who? Martin? Uh, Favier. Mm, okay. Marty Fever. Marty Fever. Um, anyway, he's a, a, a British associate. He came to America um, with the Screaming Trees. He was the Screaming Trees sound man and tour manager for one of their European tours right after I left the band. And they loved him so much that they asked him to tour America with them. Um, but he's also a really successful um, engineer and producer, and he started recording Lanigan Solar Records that I was playing on um, back in the, the mid '90s. And then he put out, he produced and recorded the first the Dark Fantastic CDs that I did um, back in the in the late '90s. Anyway, and so he's can, he he produced Tess, my my record Tess, mm -hmm. and he's uh, finishing mixes right now for for the record I was just talking about earlier called I Have Visions. And so just as soon as I have uh, all the mixes lined up, I'll start um, uh, laying the groundwork to promote to promote that release and to get it into as many hands and uh, homes as possible. And uh, I don't know, I'm gonna keep on uh, expanding my retail business, the, the uh, the vintage vinyl and vintage clothes and antiques. Go on vacation to going to go to the Oregon coast with my, my family this summer. And Oh, how fun is that? Yeah. We, we've been doing that every year. And nice. So yeah, just 
getting by. Good. And everybody in your as uh, in your family is uh, how how have they done with the pandemic? It's been challenging. I just got my shot, my first shot. Did oh, dude. Moderna um, the other day, so feeling a little extra optimism coming in with the spring weather, which is feels really good. Um, one silver lining for for us is that we've we've managed to have my daughter Hazel here um, a lot more this year because because she's doing online school like so many kids her age um, she can do that from our home where she normally lives with her mom during the school year in Puyallup she's been able to spend a lot more time with us in in this house so um, there's been some things like that that have provided a little bit of a silver lining throughout this whole ordeal but man it's been difficult really challenging yeah and uh, we can say that we hopefully you know knock on wood that we made it through, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I definitely feel optimistic, cautiously optimistic. Yeah, it's uh, it and it's and it's you know and uh, yeah, I, I think that it because I too got my my first shot here, which is uh, fantastic. It just blows my mind that it's happened in, the, in yeah a year, almost yeah. to the day. Come to think of it, um, but um that uh, yeah and, and it's springtime so you get that feeling of optimism but then you know also cautious optimism like you yeah. said you yeah. know you got to be careful but uh, yeah wow what a year what well a year. i look forward to hearing your voice on the radio oh, well thanks mark i appreciate you every that, day man. yeah well, thanks man but i appreciate your time and effort and uh, yeah, best of luck too. to you mark uh, uh, thanks always, so much always appreciate uh, seeing you and uh, take care mark Pickerel and his latest album is out now. It's on Bandcamp. It's called I Have Visions by Pickerel and the Peyote 3. So when you go to Bandcamp, search Mark Pickerel, P I C K E R E L. It's good music. Buy it, download it, do the thing. But uh, that's it for me. I'm Tom Cocaine, your host. I will catch you on the next podcast. Over and out. <laughs>